0: Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. Have you ever seen one of those visuals where you have two graphs of growth side by side? The one on the left is a perfectly straight line depicting what we think growth looks like, and the one on the right is a bunch of squiggly lines with peaks and valleys of what growth actually looks like? From my experience, working inside of growing companies is a lot more like the second graph. And I don't think people are oblivious to that fact, but we're all still a little surprised when growth is harder than those beautiful up and to the right graphs might suggest. So, how can we better prepare ourselves for the less pretty parts of that growth? Our guest today has the answers. That guest is Alistair Woolcock, Chief Strategy Officer at Revenue.io, a leading platform in both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. From his time at Revenue.io and prior experience as a VP at Gartner, Alistair believes that growing companies face what he calls the walls and stalls of growth. In our conversation, he teaches me about how to look out for these walls and stalls. We talk about the two P words that will help you to get through these walls faster and why segmentation is the reason you'll either climb over a wall quickly in your growth or be stuck languishing for quite some time. To start though, let's hear from Alistair what exactly he means when he says walls and stalls of growth. Why don't we start because I haven't heard someone specifically refer to this term before you said it to me. So why don't we start with what do you mean when you say walls and stalls of growth? Where it actually comes from is the idea around how companies scale and grow.
1: So many of us have the vision and grandeur that everything is to the top right, right? It's continuous growth. We just have to sell more, we have to invest more, we have to spend more and all these things and we'll grow, 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 grow. But the reality is it's actually not how companies grow. They have these walls and stalls. So a stall is the precursor to a wall because companies actually tend to grow more like Lego blocks. You know, it's really hard, hard periods of growth Then they take off, then they hit another period that's very hard, feels like another wall again, then they grow again and so forth. So it's much more like Lego blocks, which are stepping stones. And as you think of these as walls and stalls, the stall period is the indicator before, the wall is the period they hit. And the walls last anywhere between about 18 to 36 months for
0: an average company. Wow. And so can you maybe give me an example of how I can tell the difference, you know, certainly after 18 to 36 months, all right, yeah, I've been in a wall. But like, at the beginning of that, like, how can you tell that distinction between, okay, this is a precursor to a wall, or I'm actually in one? Yeah, so when you think about this, there's some quantifiable
1: things, and there's some qualitative things, all right? You really think about three main buckets, right? One is there's going to be early financial indicators that often come up in the stall period right this is where we're going to start to see usually two quarters back to back of where we missed the prescribed growth target right so that's that's number one just an easy thing you'll go okay hold on we, we missed a couple in a row what's going on you then also look at it and other things you're going to see you'll typically see churn rates increasing amongst the staff Right, your employees, you'll see that jump, and you're usually looking for about a 5 to 10% increase over the norm that you would have. So if I normally churn at, say, 15%, I'm looking for the 5 to 10% extra on top of that, on that side. The, set, the other piece is, it's the profitability begins to wane. Now, let's just talk the profitability metric for a second. Again, that's around what is normal for the company. So if you're a SaaS company growing and you're on the rule of 40, you might be growing at 40 but losing 40 points, that would be your norm. You're looking for a variance off of that over a couple quarters. If you're profitable, at say 20 points, again, you're looking for the variance off of that. So those are kind of some financial measures. The next ones are more qualitative in nature where you actually have people who are just getting tired. And what's that like? For any of us ever built companies, it's that thing where you know the executive teams and senior leadership are involved in every single decision. They're burning from meeting to meeting to meeting. and never feels like they're getting off the treadmill. Your staff are running at like a you know what feels like 120%, right? They're always like I'm missing deadlines on my development sprint. I, you know, it's hard, I don't have I don't have enough day in my time in my week to get to all of the, the to-dos and the customers and all of those things. And there's a difference here because those complaints are always there, but what you're really looking for is, again, it's the increase over the norm that you would expect, right? And again, you begin to hear that more and more from the company. So you're trying to feel out what's going on there.
0: Okay. So we can all be on the lookout for early signals of these stalls and ultimately the walls of growth that Alistair is describing. If you've got abnormally low attainment versus your targets, sizable hits to churn, drops in your profitability. By the way, if you're Googling when Alistair just mentioned the rule of 40, let me save you the trouble so you can get back to cooking your dinner or walking your dog or whatever you're doing. The rule of 40 is a SaaS measurement that compares your revenue growth to your profitability. So if you're growing at 20% and you have a profit margin of 20%, add those two together and congrats, you're a healthy SaaS company. I can visualize these Lego building blocks that Alistair is describing here. So I was curious if there are typical moments in a company's maturity where those walls and stalls typically show up. Turns out there are.
1: Usually in the first period is around zero to five million. Pretty good, right? That's the basic stage where you think somebody is, they've got to Beyond the MVP, they're in market, early stage development, all of those things happening, largely founder-led, hero-led type of growth inside an organization. So we call it, that's the proof of concept stage you're moving on from. Right after that, in the five to 10 million range is where you tend to see the first wall. And you might go, why there? Because you've hit the scale point where the hero of, key personalities actually can't scale the company anymore. And so you're now making your next round of key hires. And often we miss the first go around, right? It's actually very hard. We often, you know, we think these are going to be great people. Sales is the classic example. It's where people begin to invest in sales usually as an organization. And they often go out and try to headhunt the most, like the biggest name, the biggest mover they can in the business. That person comes from usually a big entity. And they're all excited to come into this fast growth SaaS company. I've got equity. Got all these things, and then they realize, hold on, there aren't all the things I'm used to in building these teams, right? And they fall apart. So that's where you tend to see the sales and marketing side really create that wall in the five to ten million. Then after you get through that piece, kind of the twenty million march up through there, it's actually usually pretty good. So kind of the ten to twenty and sometimes even into 25s is a pretty good period. It's exciting because you have figured out sales and marketing. You have figured out that. You're going to start to add alliances. You're going to do some other things. You don't need to stretch into too many new business lines and too many products because you've proven it. And right now, you're just trying to accelerate getting what you have to the market. After that is where you see then what we call the second wall kick in. And this happens around anywhere from your high 20s and beyond often, some very typically around 50. And this is a funny one, because I always used to present and talk about this in front of different CEOs around the world, many of founder CEOs. And this is the period where the executive team that often built the company is actually life-cycled out. Now, not removed from the business, they just aren't the ones that can take the scale to that next big, massive step overall. And so you do tend to see those changes um, right around there, and and it kicks in. The other piece that creeps in is what we call the P word. And this is where you begin to need process in a company. And process is an Achilles heel often, but it's the thing that makes the company scalable overall. And most founder-led, high-growth companies hate process. They They are not used to putting it in. They're not even good at putting it in. And so you, you need new leadership, you need new thinking, and an often of sort of re-engineering of the businesses to set them up to scale. And you can imagine that takes months, sometimes can take a couple of years to get really right. So anyway, back to where I was at Gartner, we did that, along with you know, credit to uh, Wilson Sinsoni as well, and Wilmer Hale, like some of the big firms out there that study this stuff. You just read the data, it all lines up to those basic walls and stalls.
0: And, you know, you mentioned process there at the end, but it also seems like as I heard you describing both the kind of $10 million wall and the $20 million wall, or like you said, all the way up to 50, like, it seems like people is the real common theme there, right? Because at that earlier wall, it was like, okay, the heroes that got you here are not going to be able to be superheroes forever and then in the second wall it's more the leadership team that got you here that's not going to be able to get you to the next one you know i've heard people talk before about the very rare subset of people who can scale at the same rate as their company and so for people who are listening to you talk about this is this one of those things where it's like okay you can prepare the absolute best you can for the walls that are absolutely coming or are there things you can actually proactively do to either try to avoid the walls or at the very least shorten that like, what sounded like pretty long and painful time that you're spending inside the wall itself.
1: So what I would say is it's less about avoiding and what you said around shortening is the right way to think about it, okay? So so how do I shorten the duration of these things that are inevitable, right? For most of us, it's going to happen. And so there's really a couple big things. For the first role, it's earlier investment and rationalization around sales and marketing. All right. So in that range, often you're coming off of typically product-centric companies, right? The leadership tends to be pretty biased that way rightfully so, is they had to build, they had to find fit, they had to do all of those things, right? But, you know, when you look at the numbers, the higher growth companies, the ones with the shortest period in that time, they're going to spend in between 35 and 46 percent of revenue onto the sales and marketing side. It's a big chunk, especially when these companies are coming off of typically 10, maybe 20 percent. Right. So so you're looking at maybe doubling that expense side of the business. And then that is to your point on people, it's adding the assets in that fall under that period earlier. Like you got to get it done a lot sooner. Then, in terms of also understanding that as they scale out, you're adding skill sets for things that help reduce the stall. So we know that you're going to start to see people that do alliances later on, not just the direct selling side. That's not immediate, but that's going to be after we get the direct selling and direct marketing down, all of that. How do I add in alliances? Often people jump to that too quickly. They go hire alliance, go, well, I'm going to build like the perfect PLG product, like growth product. I'm going to just partner up with all these mega ecosystems. And, you know, I'm just going to grow that way. So i never have to worry about that, what Alistair says on sales and marketing. <laughs> it's really hard. Okay, fair. But. Again, for most companies, they can't get enough noise or momentum in those things. So those happen to happen after the next thing. So you know that's going to happen. Prepare and invest on that side. And then let's just talk product to sales ratios as well. This is an important piece for execs to understand here. When you look at it overall, in terms of what we would call your know, client acquisition, so landing new clients versus amounts of product announcements I'm making. Which you can probably appreciate, Sean, in the very early stages, like when I'm just getting going at the zero to five million piece, I'm largely making a lot of product announcements because I got, look, I'm building this, I'm outcome driven, I'm all of that stuff. And that's almost a two to one ratio relative to client acquisition. So I'm really heavily, like I do need to get my product right. I got to have a key differentiator and I need to make that as simple and focused on the market as possible and help people get it done, right? Understand what it is. But the moment I get past that, so now I've probably invested in my first product marketer. I've been, I'm now investing in sales because we know that next wall is coming. The ratio in this next phase of growth actually flips And it is almost completely inverted in favor of customer acquisition to product announcements. So that changes the culture very heavily in the company. You become very sales centric overnight. That's very hard for the shift. So you have to put people in that understand how to deal with those dynamics.
0: This is the advice that growing companies need. 18 to 36 months inside of that first wall just feels brutal and daunting. So anything we can learn to find those special ladders to help climb these walls or prepare ourselves for the journey, it's worthwhile advice. In listening to Alistair, my biggest takeaway is the rate at which companies need to move to specialization. He talks about earlier investment in sales and marketing, making the decision to build out channel and alliance motions, or creating a product marketing function you can't continue to rely on the heroic efforts of a select few in order to get things done, or you might be stuck climbing that first wall for a long time. I remember this exact transition that he's talking about from the early days of Drift. We ran a unique product launch every single month called Marketable Moments for like two years straight. Those were our ways of staying ahead of the curve, staying differentiated in our market, and it was also the moment when headcount in sales and marketing exploded within the company and overtook the headcount in product. So if those are Alistair's tips for shortening the time inside that first wall, how does he view accelerating over the second? He taught me that it's all about maturing the go-to-market motion itself. If we drew a graph, Sean, you would say, well, how could I
1: go create my revenue? And I'll, for, I'll use whole numbers as an example for the audience here, right? So, you know, let's just use how do I get to 100 million for ease of argument, all right? Well, I could have 100 clients pay me a million dollars a year, right? At the other end of the spectrum, I could have a million clients pay me $100 a year. But what you often see is that this kind of next phase, companies really begin to, like, they're through the wall, we're scaling again, right? They go, well, hold on. I actually, I I want big deals. I got to take anything I get at the bottom. And now I'm investing in sales and marketing. So I'm getting a little bit more in terms of the the mid-tier as well. So now I have, I got a client, one client that's paying me a million a year or three or four. I got like 20 that are paying me, you know, in this, you know, let's say a thousand bucks a year. And I got like another 50 that are in kind of a hundred K range. And so they're all over the map, right? It's a big problem. Because all of a sudden, remember, we're, we're talking about scaling here. So what's also going to start on the investment? I'm going to start to put in customer success teams. I'm going to start to put in engineering, uh, more on sales engineering. All of the ancillary things that actually give sales marketing scale, you're going to go do. Marketing is going to be dealing with ICPs all over the map. So they are going to be spending a boatload of money. So the CAC numbers go through the roof. And so suddenly there's cost leakage all over the place. This is why a lot of particularly SaaS firms burn money like mad at this stage is they're trying to figure out where they actually really need to get the revenue from. So rationalizing how you're getting the revenue and from what type of client set and being very disciplined on that, companies scale a lot better that way. And I I can focus my costs, right? Maybe I say, you you know what? I need 50 clients that pay me a million a year, and I'll take 50 that pay me 100000 a year. And that's what we're going to go after, right? We're really going to focus on that. We, it's not you say no to other things, but you go, I, all my investments, my hires, my strategy, my marketing efforts, my CS efforts, all line up to that cohort. Likewise, if I'm at the other end of that, maybe I say I need 50,000 clients that are going to pay me $1,000 a year, coupled with, you know, it would be 500, then 500,000 pay me a hundred bucks a year if you took it to the other extreme. So depending on your product, you really have to think about that motion, not be spread too thin
0: overall. And I'm curious, you know, both from your experience at revenue.io, but also, as you mentioned, from your Gartner time, like that kind of messy middle that you're describing of like figuring out your segments, where you're going to place your bets, like I could totally see, going back to how you kind of started us off, that either if you are indecisive or if you are trying to be all things for everybody, I can totally see how that wall period just gets longer and longer and longer because you're trying to play in all these spaces. And so from your experience, how have you seen folks be able to either be more decisive or rationalize that? you know, new segment they're breaking into or the segment that they're moving away from in a more accelerated way?
1: Well, you're using the right words. Segmentation
0: is key. And
1: I always say to people like, look, whatever you think your segmentation strategy is, cut it in half and twice again. Hmm. Right? Like it really should feel very narrow. It's one of the great ironies of scaling businesses the more narrow you are, both in terms of segmentation and the more narrow you are in terms of where you allow sellers to
0: sell, the more revenue you tend to get. Hmm. And when you say the more narrow you are, I'm guessing you're not just talking about, you know, an employee range of companies that you're selling to in the market, but there's also some maybe like other firmographic components or other things that you're using there to distill that down to be the center of the center of the target. Is that right?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. The firmographic, the technographic profiles of what are going in there and understanding how your selling approach fits into that user profile is really important. So let me give you another example and I'm going to break this into three go-to-market buckets to help us with our segmentation. Okay. So on the first hand, you would say, all right, well, I'm going to be probably a fairly consumer-orientated type product. And your know, examples of this would be the Zooms of the world, Slacks of the world, a Dropbox of the world. And before those companies come and say, well, we sell enterprises too. I'm just being illustrated <laughs> here. So everybody connects, right? We'll
0: keep an eye they, on them.
1: They, yeah. they, they do. But in this, I'm really trying to build a product that will spread from user to user via viral emotions or via PLG motions, something like that, right? Like that's essentially what I'm gonna do, or social. And there, the metric I'm using is ARPU, right? I'm trying to understand my revenue, average revenue per user is what I'm trying to do. So that's, now I sit there and go, okay, what customers would I sell into with my firmographic, technographic, and ICP profiles that would buy that way, right? Bucket number two is where we're going to go. So this is going to be a little bit more direct. And now we're going to have marketplaces come in. And this is probably going to be where you're dealing in in what we call ARPA, so average revenue per account now, right? Because now I'm going, well, I got to scale this up a little bit. So this is actually more about the account penetration than it is the user adoption. So what's the, what's the account penetration I'm going to go after as I think of my cohort of businesses I'm going in? And this is where I'm now going to invest much more. I'm going to have ISR models, inside sales de- models with business development reps, coupled with probably a pretty good amount of you know, direct digital marketing, right? The proverbial LinkedIn's and all of those things, ad spend, et cetera. And you know, examples of this would be like a Twilio, HubSpot. A Shopify, Wix, Wix is a really good example for anybody who wants to look at a great company out of Israel that's doing wonders in the security space. And then we have our final bucket. And this is where you're gonna say, I hey, look, I now, I really have decided from my firmographic, technographic, and all of my details where I'm going, I'm going after enterprise because I have a complex product, right? I have a product that is going to require pre-sales engineering support, very high-touch, high-caliber AEs. It's going to be a multi-channel approach, and probably you're looking at buying cohorts of anywhere between 7 and 13 people I need to influence on those deals. And my deal size there is going to be into the hundreds of thousands to millions on an average deal size. Still ARPA-focused, average revenue per account. And you in know, here you would see as examples for people, UiPath. Salesforce, Workday is a good one, Snowflake, Automation Anywhere is another good one. So you begin to get there. There, So you see how the companies line up to almost these three buckets of segment. And it's not just saying, well, here's the profile of the customer. It's then matching up my go-to-market strategy with the profile. And that does wonders for minimizing those walls.
0: Matching your go-to-market strategy with the profile of the segment that you're targeting. Easy to say, much harder to execute, especially when you're choosing what your initial take on segmentation looks like. But use those three categories that Alistair mentioned. Plot your company where it's appropriate, and then go from there. And don't forget Alistair's key point. The more narrow you're focused, the more revenue you tend to get. If you're trying to be all things for all people, that second wall, whether you hit it at 20 million or 50, is going to endure until you narrow your focus. With all of this go-to-market advice in mind, I wanted to go back to an earlier part of our conversation about people. Alistair repeatedly mentioned that in most startup settings, the people who got you here are not necessarily the same people who are going to get you where you want to go next. And admitting that to yourself and to your company is an important part of getting past the walls and stalls of growth. You're always hiring for the next phase of growth. I tend to think in
1: terms of tranches of 10 to 15 million in scale. That's that's a good way of the tranche of growth to think of those people. So for instance, if I'm at $20 million wanting to go to 50 the people I want to hire are the people who are working at companies that are probably around a hundred million dollars. Right. I don't want to hire the buddy that is done the same thing I've done. Right. And that's where it gets a little comfortable because it's often a little bit out of network for people. They have to invest that time, but you're always trying to get, and then you're going to incentivize those people to come back because in most cases, equity, some dollars, some upside, and they've gone through the growth side, right? So they, then they can bring their network and so forth. So I, I know it seems like that's a very simple idea, but again, most of us aren't very disciplined about hiring people that are on that next tier, or would they do the opposite? Instead of going at 20 million to the folks that are at the 100 million, they jump straight to the billions. (laughs) Yeah. I got to get from them because these people are massively experienced. And where that goes wrong is I call it, well, most of our business cards are digital these days, but it's the business card issue. And so what do I mean by that? A lot of people, when they work at big companies, they get lulled into you know, assessing their own success and contribution based on all the access they have, all the success they're having, without the realization that when I have you know, one of the top tech companies' logos on my business card, a lot of people are going to talk to you. Mm-hmm. They may not like it, mm-hmm. but they do because they kind of have to. And then they come from there and they come to the, you know, a lesser known brand company. And suddenly they go, well, hold on, why, why don't these people want to talk to me anymore? Why, why don't my fellow engineers want to come with me? Why don't my fellow salespeople want to talk anymore? The clients here don't want to talk. And it's, it's because they didn't realize that the brand they were at gave them massive equity and success in terms of what they did. And I'm not saying that's universally true. There's always exceptions. But just for anybody that's hiring that way, don't hire too far ahead
0: of the curve. Hire the next phase and then continuously build in that way. And I think the same thing rings true with your comment about the other P word of process, right? Like if you're at the $20 million mark and you're going to, okay, we're going to go find the $50 or $100 million person to come and not just bring their network, but teach us what we don't know that we're going to need from a process perspective, Like that, that jump makes sense. But if you go and get, you know, the billion dollar company person, first of all, they're probably not going to be in the details of any of those processes anyways to actually be able to share them with you. And by the way, they're going to be expecting that your $20 million company already has all that stuff figured out and are not going to be the ones who want to build it, right? And so I think there's a kind of multi-dimensional problem there that extends far beyond just like the logo on their business card.
1: And I'll use, just because I was... I did a lot in the world of RevOps and, of course, Revenue.io. I'm, I'm heads down in that as well. You tend to then get a lot of what I call go-to-market technical debt, right? So people start, because you bring these people in, they're used to having, you know, 20 different tools to help them do something. And I'm always amazed at how many companies I went and saw that are like, they are in that 10, 15, $20 million range. And you, you look under the hood and they have, you know, they're going to have half a dozen marketing technologies They don't just have a CRM, but suddenly they've layered it with, you know, all of the supporting automation tools. They have workflow tools in there. They have just a lot going on there. And then now today, of course, is the conversational tools. There's everything else that come in. And before you see it, there's a lot of debt sitting there. And then what happens is the people that were there originally, they leave. The people come in and bring a bunch more tools. Now you actually have almost too much process and you actually slow the thing down again, right? It becomes analysis paralysis and you go, could somebody just actually go listen to a customer, understand what's going on and then tell another? Like, are we doing that every day? Or are we sitting around looking at our 15th dashboard on the day to analyze a business of 20 million bucks, right? So, and I'm an advocate for tools, absolutely. But consolidation of platforms is absolutely key there as well, right? Don't over-engineer.
0: Before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months?
1: Ooh, best book I've
0: read. I'm gonna go with Working With AI, Thomas Davenport's new book.
1: And I know that sounds like I'm picking on, but I, I, sorry folks, I read a ton of business books and all of that stuff, so there you are. It's a book about real stories of human-machine collaboration. And Thomas Davenport, for those that know him, he's one of the pioneers in the world of analytics and AI, MIT, Harvard, all of that stuff. And I love it because in that book, you know, from Morgan Stanley to Chow Now, it, it just goes through literal use cases of how AI has augmented humans all the way through. So I I love the real world practicality of seeing AI actually do something. I live in the world of AI and and I'm just very jazzed to actually see a bunch of companies doing it. So his research there is brilliant, I love that book. Working with AI, Thomas Davenport.
0: That's a good one, thank you. All right, next one I typically say, favorite part about working in ops. You are, you know, an honorary ops person, I would say, and certainly work a lot with ops. So favorite part about working in or with ops?
1: Overall, it's pretty simple for me. What I love about ops is it's the insights for me that allow me to make decisions faster. Ops gives me that, whether I'm looking at pendo data inside with our head of product and understanding market fit for something and making decision around where we're going to go make investments for our growth strategy that comes because you've got good operational discipline to go down into all of the detail that's there or i talked to our RevOps team and they're really sitting there helping me understand where we at not just on pipeline but in terms of the customer adoption of what is working in terms of the sales process, the messaging they're doing, the guided selling sequence. It's like they, they give us the detail early so I can then feed that and again, help say maybe our marketing team influence that. So insights out of ops, that's the thing that excites me the most because the more insight I have, the faster I can make a decision and it's decisions and making clarity on decision, the speed of decision is one of the keys to growing. All right, flip side of that, least favorite part about working with ops. It is, well, I I suppose the exact inverse of that, where at times you have to really help people, yeah, it sounds cliche, Sean, but see the forest for the trees, right? It's very easy to get into over-engineering of operations, rightfully so, because ops is often concerned about risk, concerned about compliance, concerned about actually scale, and it's a very hard line you have to walk sometimes of just enough process. And that just enough mantra is not what most ops people love to hear. Someone who impacted you getting to the job you have today.
0: Yo, know, there's several.
1: Probably the one that influenced me most, the guy that gave me the break in my industry to come in. His name is Dan Sotil. And a wonderful man. And unfortunately, he passed away tragically several years ago at a fairly young age, but his best advice that I love, he was just say, look, Alistair, don't just dream, dream bigger. Absolutely love that mantra. It was, he was a phenomenal person. For any of you ever read the book, Multipliers? I was like a case study on a multiplier personality. Absolutely phenomenal man. Now he passed away, so I'm gonna give you one living as well. Yeah, I gave you a shout out to Andrew Bentley. Andrew Bentley was somebody that helped bring Microsoft into Western Canada many, many years ago. I not know, I'm rambling on. This is like an Oscar speech. So <laughs> These people deserve guy, it. Rishi Sood at Gartner, like that guy, he took that business from a completely different trajectory. And, and he is a phenomenal person. Anybody that gets a chance to connect with Rishi Sood at Gartner You should, the guy is a visionary, a pioneer on scaling
0: and one of the smartest people I know. That's great. All right, last one, it's your turn now for the advice. One piece of advice for people who wanna have your job someday.
1: Yo, as you're thinking about building a business, you're thinking about scaling, be relentless about asking yourself and thinking through this logic flow. People don't work with other people. They don't work with products differentiation doesn't come from showing how different you are, but it actually comes from helping somebody do something differently. And so whether you're talking ops, whether you're talking go to market, you know, any of these functions, ask yourself, not just how I could be the, how I could show I'm different as an ops person, how can I show my company to do something differently that's going to help them scale? And I don't care if you are Brand new in your career, or you're 23 years in and an executive, every day ask that. And my part two of that is be relentlessly close to your customers. Always, always be close to the customer. And John Chambers, you know, the famous CEO and former chairman of, of Cisco, at the peak of Cisco. That man made sure he had no more than six layers between him and a customer at any given time. And he met with the customers every single week. If he can do it, all of us can do it.
0: Thanks so much to Alistair and the entire team at revenue.io for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, Make sure you're subscribed to our show. A new episode comes out every other Friday. And also, if you learned something from Alistair today or from any of our episodes, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people to find the show. All right, that's going to do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.